Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. See, this morning we celebrate the love of God in Christ. We celebrate God's goodness and mercy to us. That's why we turn to Isaiah chapter 53. We've been going through the, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in our time in Advent this uh, December and into November, and here we are, we're culminating into Isaiah 53, a story of God's loving sacrifice for us in Christ. Here's our big idea. Jesus was sent by God to give his life for men. And we're going to really see this passage kind of break down into three different parts. In 52.13 through 53.3, we're going to see a rejected Christ. We're going to see a rejected Jesus. And it's going to kind of culminate into 53.4 through 6, where we're going to see a sacrifice Jesus, the intention of God the Father behind the loving sacrifice of the Son. And then in 53.7 through 12, we're going to see a triumphant Jesus. What's the outcome of this story of, of sacrifice in Jesus' life. So we're going to start with a rejected Jesus in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 53, 3. Read with me. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, as his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So... Shall he sprinkle many nations? Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see. Excuse me, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. See, what we find here first is a, a exalted Jesus. Even in the context of Jesus' rejection, which we're going to get to in chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, we start off with this picture of a Jesus who's exalted among the nations. And that's exactly what he's getting at here in verse 13. Verses 13 and 14 show us a, a huge contradiction, right? We see verse 13, my, hold, my, my servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And in verse 14, and his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance right? There's this huge contradiction that's happening. We can see why this passage was so hard for our kind of Jewish ancestors to kind of interpret, because there's this contradiction that's bound up into these verses. And we go on in verse 15, and it gets global again, like Isaiah has done so often. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And that term sprinkle is terminology that we're so familiar with. It's the language of the high priests in Leviticus chapter 4, that when they uh, offered the bull for the sacrifice, they would sprinkle the altar with its blood. And that's the word that's used here. Later on in verse 15, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand, right? These nations, these far out coastlands, these people that live on the periphery of the earth are going to come to a knowledge that they hadn't known before. Now remember, we started off Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah is going to go out and he's going to preach a message to those people who don't see, who don't understand, who don't hear. That's what he's told he's going to do in places like Isaiah 6, verse 9. But now, these nations whom the Jews loathe, who the Jews despise, they will come to this knowledge that the Jews themselves 
will not be able to come to. See, that's what we see in 53, 1 through 3. Jesus would be rejected by his own. Look at 53, 1, which we just read. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See, verse 1 and 2 tell us that this servant of God would go unrecognized. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, this verse is quoted in John chapter 12. And if you understand the book of John, it's laid out in two halves. The first half is chapter 1 through chapter 12, where there's seven signs presented to an unbelieving Israel nation. And at the end of that uh, signs, or that period of signs, there's this raising of Lazarus, the God who raises the dead. And Israel is still blind and deaf to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. And John quotes this verse, whom has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, verse 2 tells us that he has no form, no stateliness, no majesty, no kind of dominion or authority that we should honor him or treasure him. He's like a root out of dry ground, like you're stumbling along in the desert, and there's just this thing, this plant that's popped up. It's got no majesty. No, it's just ordinary. It's just there. That's Jesus. Verse 3 gets direct. Jesus was rejected. It's not just that he's common and he's ordinary. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah tells us that he knew sorrow and grief. And he was so despised, so forsaken, so turned upon by those that he should have found a home with. Men would turn their faces from him. I think this is a direct fast forward to the cross where Jesus is hung naked and bleeding. And as men and women, his countrymen walk by him, they turn their faces away so that they don't have to take in the sight of his shame. showing all of his wounds, nailed to a cross along the road into Jerusalem. And all of this happened at the place of the skull, the place outside of the city, right at the entryway, right at the gateway, so that the shame could just be put on display. And so Jesus takes the shame to the cross, bears it, and everybody who walks by has to turn their face away because they're so ashamed to look at it. And we step away from these verses and we say, how could the God who's described in verses 13 through 15, the God who brings the nations underneath his rule and authority, how could that be the same God that's described in 53, 1 through 3? How could that be the same person? How could this God, the Son of God, be rejected by men? That's what the text says, doesn't it? And the text gives us the answer to that question. How could it happen? Well, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a a root out of dry ground. There's no majesty about Jesus, just this common everyday stuff. 
When we go to the Gospels, when we look at the Gospels, we see this corroborated in the Gospels. We see uh, the, the people that hear Jesus emphasizing his commonness. They talk about, we know who your dad is. Passages like John chapter 6, they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Or Matthew 13, 55 through 57, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then, then did this man get all these things? Luke chapter 4, and all spoke of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? See, the crowds were always sizing up Jesus according to who his dad was or who his mom was. And we see this in, in John chapter 8. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. They're making implications about Jesus' mother. They talk about his hometown. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What Nathaniel says in John chapter 1. John 19, Pilate hangs this inscription above Jesus at the cross. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Why does he put in Nazareth? Because it's such a backwards, hick town, right? He's emphasizing this guy is common. This guy is every day. There's nothing special about him. See, we tend in our sinfulness to judge books by their covers, don't we? We judge books by their covers. We, we want Saul's rather than David's. Jesus' glory was hard for us to see behind all of the circumstance that surrounded him. He was born with farm animals. His dad was a lowly carpenter. His mother was accused of adultery. It was hard for us to see Jesus for what he actually is. More importantly, though, our sin only allows us to see what we see. Our sin only allows us to see the things that are right in front of us. And being that we think ourselves to be perfectly competent, to be righteous, and we don't need someone like Jesus, we look right beyond the glory of Jesus and we see just another person. Since Jesus didn't come with 150 million YouTube followers or a bank account with quadruple digits, that didn't make any sense. If you're bank, anyway, okay. Our world only values things that come with dollar signs. And when Jesus showed up with commonality, we looked right beyond his glory and his grace. See, it's still in this day, it's hard for us to see beyond some conceptions of Jesus. We see Jesus as a good luck charm. We pray to Jesus when we're in need. We send our kids to vacation Bible school and to Sunday school so that, so that they can learn to be good people. And sometimes we ask Jesus to take the wheel or to be my co-pilot or whatever else you might say. But for us to imagine him in the way our text is about to portray Jesus is something else entirely. See, the question we should be asking when we're coming out of verses 1 through 3 is this. Why does this exalted servant bear so much shame whose shame is he bearing 
Verses four through six are going to answer this question. We see a sacrifice, Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just take into account for just a second these three verses, the words that describe a substitution. There's the word born or carried or for or upon him, with or laid on him. It's the language of substitution and atonement that's used here in verses 4 through 6. Isaiah is inviting us to the, the, the temple to make sacrifice. And he's finding that this flawless servant of God is now the broken lamb of God. Let's dig into what he says in verse 4. He says, he bore our griefs. See, this verse seems to emphasize just the common human experience. Look at these words that are described, our griefs, our sorrows. There's nothing moral that's being stated here. It's just that Jesus experienced what you and I experience in our life. Jesus himself lived as a human. He knew what it was to have a difficult Monday. He knew what it was to smell body odor. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to have emotion. And what Hebrews comes along and says, it says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. See, Jesus experienced sorrow and grief like you and I experienced sorrow and grief. He took on that experience in his humanity. He felt our weakness. He felt mental and physical fatigue, hunger, emotion, and short of sin, Jesus experienced everything that you and I experience. Verse 5 presses on a little bit further. It's not just that Jesus experienced humanity. It's that he became a substitute for sin. It says there, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Four phrases, all of which emphasizing the substitutionary role of Jesus' death. If verse 4 described the human experience, verse 5 turns our attention to his substitution. And notice these are moral terms, transgression, iniquities. These things have been covered over by the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See, the scandal of verse 5 is that another person is bearing the consequence of my actions. He was pierced for my transgressions, crushed for my iniquities. Jesus is a willing substitute. You might say, well, that does, that's not possible. You can't just like step in for somebody else's sin. Like I can't just bear one of my kids' punishment. I can't go pay detention for my kids, right? Not that my kids have ever had detention that I know of. But we have this illustration in Leviticus 16. And maybe you're familiar with it. It's called the Day of Atonement. What uh, the high priest was to do was they were to go and get these two goats. And the first goat would be sacrificed and the blood would be shed on the altar and it would uh, kind of purify everything that was going to happen. But the second goat, the high priest would take it and he would lay his hands upon the head of this animal and he would pray to confess the sins of Israel. 
And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness to be forgotten forever. See, the idea of transferring guilt is bound up in the Bible. And the latter half of verse 5 shows the outcomes. There's peace and healing, right? That's what it says. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We've talked about how God brought us peace with him through Jesus Christ in places like Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We've been brought healing. Remember back in chapter 1 when uh, God is laying out the case against Israel and he's saying, you're not healthy. You're not well. He says the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot. Even to the head, there is no soundness in it. And he's pointing out that, that Israel is not right. He's using an analogy saying it's just like you're physically sick. You have a spiritual sickness that God is healing here in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Verse 6 kind of summarizes this. He's engaged our iniquity. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, verse 6 gives us this summary that we like sheep have gone astray. We're like stupid, dumb sheep. I saw this video a few weeks ago, and I laugh every time I see it because it just plays out like the Christian experience, and no one's going to play it for us now. You have this sheep stuck in a, a trench, and he's getting pulled out. That's how you pull a sheep out of a trench, by the way, in case you're ever called, called upon to do that. So I'm stuck, I'm stuck. Oh, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm stuck. <laughs> right? we, we, we resonate with that. That's our experience as Christians, isn't it? We're just dumb sheep. We do stupid things. Now i got to get you all to focus again, right? We've gone astray. We've abandoned God's will. Each of us, a lawbreaker. We're stuck in the trench. And when God pulls us out, we continually go back to the trench time and time again. This is who we are. We're like sheep. We're like dumb, stupid sheep. And God has provided for us in the death of Jesus Christ. Look what he says. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. He took our sins off of our shoulders and placed them upon Christ. He took our stupidity as sheep and he gave it to Jesus and Jesus sacrificed himself to pay for it in its fullness. See, the question we raise here in these three verses is this. How could God's servant pay for sins he didn't commit? And we kind of uh, circled around this a little bit, but let's dive in. Let's just kind of dive in and put our teeth into what the Bible has to say about how someone might bear the sins of another person. See, the concept is actually writ large throughout the Bible. We might even say it's the, the, the narrative or the flow of the Scriptures themselves. See, in the Old Testament, we obviously see the sacrificial system played out from Exodus all the way through uh, the time of Jesus. But we see it in individual texts. We, we've already mentioned it in Leviticus 16. In Exodus chapter 12, right, Moses is told by, by God himself that you're going to take a spotless lamb and you're going to sacrifice it. You're going to take the blood and you're going to it, spread it on the doorpost and on the lintels of your house. And then the angel of death is going to pass over your house. 
Leviticus 16, 16, the high priest is laying his hands and transferring the guilt upon this animal. The the Old Testament person is bringing the sacrifice of of a perfect, spotless animal to be sacrificed on behalf of his sins. We see it clearly in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that Jesus Christ became sin for us, that we might receive the righteousness of God through faith. We see it in Galatians chapter 3, where Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We see it in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter 9 that he, he has been offered once to bear the sins of many. It's Romans chapter 8 that... Um, what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending His Son as an offering for sin, and so condemned sin in the flesh. So we see this time and time again throughout the Scriptures. All these passages tell us what is happening in what C.S. Lewis called the deep magic, the, the interworkings of God in His creation. That it, by this transfer of guilt from a guilty party to a guilty bearer, Payment for sin is possible by a righteous, sacrificed life. See, all of this takes place on the basis of faith. And God, in His wisdom, saw fit to make a sacrifice for sin in His Son, Jesus. And so, like drawing poison out of a wound, He took away the sting of death by giving His own Son to death. And we want to look at this last section because it portrays to us not just a beaten, dead Messiah, portrays to us a living, victorious Messiah. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a, a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus is a silent sufferer in these verses. He's not a complainer. People ask me, how are you doing? And I said, I can't complain. And they say, well, it doesn't do any good anyway. But Jesus recognized that. There's no complaint in Jesus' mouth. When he's brought before sinful, wicked men at his trial and before his death, he's brought before Caiaphas and Anna, the high priests. He doesn't make complaint. When he's brought before the unrighteous Pilate, he doesn't make complaint. He barely even speaks up in his own defense. Verses 10 through 12 put a bow on it. And they wrap it up and they show us his glorious heritage. Read this with me. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's just stop and unpack a few of these things that are stated here. I mean, these verses are some of the most rich and thick of, of the Old Testament. First, have you ever thought about this, that it's the Father who put Jesus to death? Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. See, the Father and Jesus aren't working at odds with each other. Jesus isn't a prodigal who's crossed his Father's will and left his heavenly home to kind of save his his own. No, this is the design of the loving Father, crafted before the foundations of the earth, that the Father would send the Son, and the Son would give himself out of faithfulness to his Father. That's what's being described here. This isn't just a rogue Jesus working on his own, that he's enabled by the Holy Spirit, that he's sent by the Father, that the entirety of the Godhead is working to save his people. And it goes on in verse 10, and and what we see in verse 10 is that it assumes resurrection. It says that he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Jesus would live to see the fruits of his sacrifice. He would be victorious over sin and death, and he would see the eternal benefits of his people. Titus tells us that he has uh, purchased for himself a people through his death. Right now, Jesus is glorified that we meet as those people that trust in the provision of Jesus Christ. And he's receiving glory and honor in us as we claim our faith in him. He's drawing the benefits of his sacrificial work. And verse 11 highlights exactly what the extent of that is, that many will be saved. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. In fact, that word many is going to be used in 11 and 12. It was used back in chapter 52, verse 13, that he's going to make many nations come to him. That this saving work isn't just for the original 11 disciples. That this saving work isn't just for American Christians. That this saving work isn't just a Western thing in U.S. history or in world history. That he's going to save many nations. That he's going to draw many to himself. Verse 12, he'll share his inheritance with us. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Do you realize that the Old New Testament says that we are co-heirs with Christ? That we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, that Jesus splits the spoil with us, that he extends his rule and his blessing and his goodness to us in eternity. And finally, what's most notable about these last three verses is that still, when we come to this section, the idea of substitution is everywhere. It's everywhere here. Look at verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
Verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. In verse 12, he bore the sin of many. Again in verse 12, he makes intercession for the transgressors. Right now, uh, God is drawing our attention to this idea that he has given us a sufficient sacrifice. That Jesus' reward is his sacrifice, his, his progeny, his, his uh, litany of people who've believed in him are standing in faith and they are giving praise to him even now. See, this section highlights that Jesus re- has a reward for his sacrifice. And what is it? It's you. It's me. If our faith is in Jesus Christ, we are the reward of his sacrifice. We are the ones accounted righteous. We are the transgressors who he makes intercession with or for. We are those whom he sees, even now, the beneficiaries of his sacrificial life. What this passage is pointing us to is that this coming one, this Messiah, was going to suffer. And he was going to suffer for a particular cause. And that cause was you and me and our faith in Jesus Christ so that he could receive glory for eternity. See, the language of this passage of Scripture is such that it directs our attention consistently to the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. That he would take the place of sinners that he would insert himself into the wrath that we deserved and that he would give us the righteousness that we didn't deserve. See, as an application of this, we step away and we say, what's this mean? How does this have any bearing on life? What seems very theoretical, it seems kind of, uh, this is theology, I don't like talking about theology. See, here's where the rubber meets the road this morning is that nothing else can make you right with God Nothing else in all the world can make you right with God. What this passage is describing is it's describing God's means by which we would be made righteous before him. And there's no other means that God has provided. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard this before. This is completely new to you. You've never heard this idea that Jesus became a substitute for sinners like you and I. That he paid uh, in full the, the cost of our sinfulness. Maybe that's a foreign concept to you. For just a brief moment, I just want to humbly speak to you. I've prayed about this for, for a couple days now and just thought through this. And I just want to speak with clarity. See, if this concept is, is foreign to you, I just want to humbly come before you and suggest that maybe you are not a Christian Perhaps if you described yourself as a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home and you grew up in a Christian culture and you hold to a Christian ethic, you may even have some Christian theology, you watch Christian movies and you listen to Christian music and you do Christian things. The center of being a Christian is what is being described here in Isaiah chapter 53. Christians are those who place faith in Jesus Christ alone to save them. Christians are not those who do right things and act right ways and hang out with right people and listen to right things and write good stuff. 
Christians are those who say, I wasn't righteous enough on my own. I needed a sacrifice on my behalf. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean you're not a nice, upstanding citizen. You're not a nice person. But it does mean that you will not be a Christian until you place your faith, your reliance upon Jesus' substitutionary death for the forgiveness of your sins. What I mean is simply this. Jesus' substitutionary death is the only means by which we are made right with God. And I would hate for us to to think that we're right with God when we aren't and to go out of this place and think, good thing I went to church today that chalk up some points before God for me. See, this is what Christian theologians have described for years as conversion, that every person needs to come to a place of reckoning with the cross. Sometimes I'll have people say to me, I'll say, well, uh, do you go to church? And they'll say, oh yeah, I've always been a Christian. And when you stop and think about that, if the doctrine of conversion is true, there is no person that has always been a Christian. There has always been a place where we have to place faith in Jesus Christ. Be it as a three-year-old or as a 99-year-old or whatever it might be, you have to come to a place where you say, I trust in Jesus Christ alone. And it has to be something that is lived out in everyday life consistently. See, this good news of Jesus' death for sinners is God's means by taking us out of a state of being under his wrath and placing us in a state of being recipients of his justifying grace in Christ. He pronounces us righteous before his throne. See, this is the good news fundamentally that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. That he was without sin. And he He laid down his life as he was falsely accused by sinful men, gave himself up as a sacrifice, was put into a grave after his death, and was raised to new life from that grave. All of this so that sinners like you and I wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God. That's the good news that we're describing. I'm afraid that some of us in this culture, especially in the 21st century, we think that being Christian is about doing good things. It's about being a good person. It's about kind of vaguely reading your Bible and having throw pillows with Scripture verses on them. Being Christian is about holding to this truth that's presented to us in Isaiah 53. Let's turn the gears here for a second. Let's talk about those who are familiar with this concept. And sometimes what we're actually is we're, we're too familiar with the concept. See, maybe you're here and you've heard this so many times, it's actually too familiar. You've become desensitized to the beauty of the goodness of Christ. You've no amazement at God's grace. You've lost sight of God's goodness and His mercy. Let's just be honest, this happens, doesn't it? It's like being a security guard at the Louvre. You walk by something so amazing time and time again that you've learned to think less of it. So what we do is we just become desensitized to the beauty of God's goodness in Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. You've just lost your first love. You've kind of fallen out of this kind of amazement at God's grace and His beauty and His goodness in Christ. 
which is an astounding thing, isn't it? Here's an exercise to try. Let's just step away for a second and try this exercise. Let's just imagine that sin that you're most ashamed of in your past. And sometime when you have a free moment to sit down and just remember, remember the impulses of your heart, the the things that you desired, the things that you wanted, to dwell in that for a second, to to recognize the guilt of that and its difference between what God desired of you and, and the violation that you've committed. And then secondly, to see Jesus as that moment's opposite. If, if I'm a person who's filled with greed, I recognize that Jesus is a person who is completely content. And I see the juxtaposition between my life and Jesus' life. And then I go to the cross where I realize that those two things are switched. That Jesus received the punishment of my greed. And that I received the righteous life of his contentment. And then subsequently to go with thankfulness to God. Say, Lord, we thank you that you have extended grace and mercy in this particular area. You have shown me kindness in Christ. See, really what we're doing, if we do this, is we're slowing the pace of life down so that we can consider what's happening on a spiritual level. We're not simply doing another lap around the Louvre. See, Christians, sometimes we have a lot of work to do to be amazed by God's grace. Certainly there are times it comes suddenly, without work. We get the tingling up the spine. We get the, uh, the you know, the, what are those? The goosebumps, yes. Wow. It's been a long day, folks. We get the goosebumps on our arms. We get the feeling in our stomach. We recognize God's presence is unique with us. We, we get this sense of God's faithfulness and His mercy, and, and those times are great. But there's other times where you wake up and you're just in a foul mood. You think about all the things that you have in front of you for the day. You think about all the people that, that you have to please. You think about all the work that you have to do, and you're just, it's adding up. It's accumulating in your mind, and you just feel oppressed. And what we have to do in those moments is we have to sit down and we have to unpack the grace of God afresh. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves and remember that no matter what the day holds for me, no matter what things need to be fixed, no matter what troubles and trials I face that day, there is a God in heaven who has made provision for me for all eternity in the death of Jesus Christ. There's joy to be found even in the most lifeless situations. Even when the world has lost all of its color and meaning, there is still the cross. There's still the beauty of resurrection promised to us in Jesus Christ. We have to do the work of unpacking it and reshaping it so that it makes sense to our sinful, wayward hearts, right? I wonder if this upcoming year might be a year in which we learn to walk in this grace. Every week is an education, as it were, in living out this cross-centered life in a new way. 2022 won't be any different. The problems that we face right now aren't going to magically just disappear by the time the new year begins. We're still going to face the same pressures, the same difficulties. 
We're still going to have COVID around. We're still going to have difficulties with work. We're still going to have economic problems. We're still going to have all of those things. How are we going to see the goodness of God in Jesus Christ in the face of those difficulties? I wonder if we might be learning right now to reorient our hearts and minds away from those earthly things that we so dearly cling to and learn to cling to the cross of Jesus. Is that your heart this morning? Is that your desire to to cling all the more to the goodness of God in Christ? I want to pray this morning that God creates that desire in us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would create that sense, that need. Lord, the description you've given us here in Isaiah 53 is beautiful. You describe your son's payment for our sins. And Lord, there is plenty here for us to respond to in faith. So Lord, move us to be a people who cling to your provision in Christ. Who don't live only in the past failings. Who don't live only in the promise of a godless future, but live in the present reality of your grace and mercy to me this morning. Lord, your steadfast love is never ceasing. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I thank you for your grace and your kindness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.